Welcome to the Digital Week. This week we're unpacking Education 3.0. How can education play its role in raising the stakes in the innovation economy so that we're prosperous for years to come? Well, today we're going to unpack uh, what is how are we getting students to work on industry problems, so hands-on experimental learning. What's the pivot to the innovation and entrepreneurship economy? Lifelong learning as a concept. Could students come with a warranty? Could they? have a service contract for the rest of their life with their institution that guarantees they will keep them up to speed with the latest and greatest. And what about personal learning advisors? Hmm, that's Education 3.0. I'm here at the University of the Real World, Michael Rosen. How are you today? Wonderful, Monica, and welcome to our real-world campus. I know, you know, it occurs to me there's been a lot of uh, in the public media this week about, you know, how woeful Australia's experience has been on the OECD scale of collaboration between industry and universities and how that is deemed globally as one of the things that will, is, re, is holding us back. Tell, Michael, you work in universities all the time. Tell me about what you, how you see that. Good point, Monica. Well, first of all, we see uh, massive worldwide differences. Um, the way industry and universities engage varies dramatically uh, around that, um, varies dramatically around the world. We see countries where uh, a lot of uh, executives are highly qualified, masters, PhD qualified, uh, senior executives. Uh, effect we don't see at all in Australia. So we have to recognize that worldwide, politically, economically, culturally, that there are massive differences between industry and academia. So, Mark, when you talk um, about things like PhDs and master's degrees, sounds a bit industrial age to me. What's the 3.0, you know, with the innovation and digitisation economy that might strike universities? Or? So, so, first of all, of all, I believe we will have for quite a while um, degrees, not so much because of the degree, but because they, 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 rec- um, they recognise that I've got a certain thinking capability. Companies like SAP would hire a PhD in, in, in physics not so much because of the background in physics, but because he or she demonstrated deep thinking capabilities. Uh, where we believe the world is going, when you see how fast the real world is moving, uh, that universities have to connect to, to the high speed uh, with which the world is moving on faster than ever before. So our key challenge here on campus is that in an area like IT, digital technologies, uh, the world is moving in a speed that it's very hard to keep the curriculum up to date. So for us, there's a massive need to listen to, to work with industry, to, to, to align with the speed that we observe outside campus. So I guess this is where then we're seeing experimental learning, where we're seeing the intersection a lot of what we do at the PwC chair in the digital economy is I'll bring a corporate client, so a number of corporate clients that have a problem set, and we'll bring them to students. Maybe talk a little bit about some of that you know, hands-on, real-world experiment learning. So that's right, there are two-sided benefits. One is for the student to be exposed to real-world problems, real-world opportunities. Um, Some of these real-world problems we couldn't even engineer here. They require deep conversations with industry, and this deep conversation with industry points us then to problems and opportunities that we couldn't even imagine on campus. Uh, But second, think about a university like QET with nearly 47,000 students. Also, has a huge space full of digital talent, digital natives. So what we want to do here is as well um, provide access to this talent pool to use the concentrated thinking capability of this um, thinking um, of these digital natives and make it accessible to industry partners. And this is where we try to create the win-win. 
So can you give us a few examples of some of the different processes or tools or engagement models you're using with clients? Uh, maybe two. One is um, the ambition that very soon 50% or even more of our assessments are grounded in real-world problems, uh, where we ultimately would see that a real-world university would confront students with real-world problems. We might, for academic purposes, sometimes translate these problems, but, but one metric is to really boost this. Second, we have a construct called Student Design Jam. So under the umbrella of the PwC, PwC Chair in Digital Economy, we created a student design jam where we take students as a cohort and expose them to a problem or opportunity statements that come from our industry partners. And then in a mixed team of PwC mentors, QT advisors, industry partners, and digital talent, our students, for one or two days, we try to ideate by heavily capitalizing on the kind of quite unconstrained thinking potential of our students. And then I noticed in my inbox this week uh, an interesting uh, subject that you've launched called disruption. So you're actually looking at industry-level disruptions as a student cohort over a longer term of, say, three or four months. Absolutely. So disruption is one of those topics that we now embed in our curriculum. Um, we observe a lot of disruption in industry to package it up, to see the deep concepts, to understand what we previously discussed, what is self-disruption, is an art. So that is the talent of someone who designs curriculum. But at the core of all of this is to develop a mindset in students that allows them to think with digital um, age capabilities um, and increasingly to turn them into entrepreneurs. So stage one is indeed to combine classical curriculum with deep industry problem uh, driven learning experiences. Stage two is to create the entrepreneurial spirit. So we want to see more and more entrepreneurs. And Monica, you work a lot with entrepreneurs. So I would be interested, um, what do you observe in that space, from the outside, from the inside, the, the emergence of the new entrepreneur among our students? Well, there's the demand for entrepreneurs, uh, for startups and infrastructure, and it's huge. We've got QT starters here, but we connect in with the Idea Network and a number of global and international entrepreneurship organisations. And we're seeing somewhere around 50 to 60% of students that want to graduate and go into an entrepreneurial startup, a degree, or even if they're not the founder, they're going to want to work in something that gives them that sense of new world, creating new solutions. Uh, and so on the back of that, what we're seeing is a demand from the startup community that might not be recent graduates looking to universities as a place, A, for some talent that thinks differently, B, for some people that are probably affordable to hire um, and are willing to take, uh, you know, I guess conditions that are maybe not uh, at the peak level of, uh, you know, of salary remuneration, maybe prepared to work for sweat and for equity or to do something on the side. So we're seeing we play increasingly at the PwC chair a role of a matchmaker, matchmaking QUT startup ideas with capital, or matchmaking those QT startup ideas made with corporates that the startup has an idea and the corporate has a problem it needs solving. So we create the matchup. And then there's also some mentoring. So it's the demand is growing. So, so Monica, you talk about the outside demand. What is about the, the internal ability to actually create the next entrepreneur? We know how to educate the future accountant, nurse or engineer. Um, what do we need to do to, to educate the next entrepreneur, independent of the outside demand? Well, number one is mindset. You know, in Australia, we've had a long history of entrepreneurship, but we never called it that word. You know, we had family businesses. You know, there's a lot, family businesses are the core of Australia, but we've always called them family businesses, which sounds a bit daggy, to be quite frank. Entrepreneurship is really the new buzzword, but it's an old word. It's something we do very well. We get up, we create something, something doesn't exist, we make it happen. We've tended not to be t as good though at en masse taking those 
entrepreneurial organisations and creating much bigger global organisations out of them, with a few marked exceptions. So I think the future for us is about this focus on entrepreneurial startups, getting some new items going, then we'll have some mergers and acquisitions of those with other entities and move on to global scales. And to what extent do you think we need further assets, um, access to, to venture capital, um, access to, to intellectual capital, uh, access to physical assets, to allow entrepreneurs to grow uh, in the kind of speed um, that they desire? Well, it's interesting. This week I was at uh, a Global Cities conference and we talked a lot about the innovation infrastructure mm. of the future, which will be a global network um, of select partners that choose to work together that allows capital and talent and ideas and problems to flow freely. You know, we talk to cities like Shenzhen in China, where, third, where Tencent Media, the largest media company in the world, with 100,000 million subscribers, um, you know, the numbers we just can't imagine. And, you know, they talk about being able to quickly exchange talent and ideas between Brisbane and Shenzhen. Um, I mean, this is really, I think, the mm. new infrastructure. The government has funded and seeded some capital, Uh, but often it's it's not the capital that we're laying, it's actually the talent that can, can deliver. We have a lot of ideas, people. This is where the innovation labs become really important in our infrastructure because it's about converting the idea to an actual business that can create value. So what I hear, what you're saying is it's also our role to embed the entrepreneur into networks. Uh, and while maybe the classical degree really um, educates individual, highly personalized uh, intellectual assets, creates a mini individual who then higher, gets higher. The entrepreneur is someone who really needs to be embedded in, in increasingly global networks to access ideas, money, and other talent, yeah? Correct, absolutely. I'm interested also, though, in the talent that we're creating out of universities. You know, are they going to come with a warranty? Well, that's interesting that you say this, uh, Monica, and you know how our appetite around 3.0 concepts um, under the umbrella of the PwC chair um, where we try to understand for different industries, what would 3.0 look like? 3.0 meaning we go beyond the classical, highly automated today world, 1.0, uh, the minor, incremental, uh, more reactive improvement of the real world, 2.0, to thinking about the new new. What is emerging, uh, but midterm, reasonably realistic? And under the umbrella of education 3.0, one emerging idea is Uh, to look at um, human capital, very much like, like you look at maybe an IT asset. So if a company today purchases software, the vendor typically promises that this software will be updated, uh, which gives you as a consumer trust that I always have access to the latest capabilities. But if a university hands over a graduate, you don't have that sort of kind of warranty and relationship at all. And one idea we have in mind here is if The digital age really means the Internet of people. We shift the focus from corporations to people. We go from corporate well-being to personalized well-being. What role would universities play in the future to make sure that our alumni, for example, always stay up to date? And what incentives could we provide so they go back to those providers who they trusted for three years, as opposed to going after first degree out to the market and then source um, expertise, uh, but without having a relationship to those kind of providers. Mm, I like the model. So it would be some sort of a subscription model where for maybe a fixed fee for the rest of your working life, you can come back and engage with the university. Would it be access to big data sets? I mean, how would you envisage it? We, we, we don't know yet. So like with most of these kind of innovations, we have to consider what's the business model, uh, what's the technology delivery model, uh, what's the customer adoption uh, like. 
Yes, you could imagine a, a highly personalized subscription model. And the analogy we see here is that we are very used to, to physical well-being. Uh, for, for years or decades, people go to their doctors, have regular checkups, and they understand that physical well-being is, is crucial to quality of life. Uh, increasingly, um, in, in times of an aging population, we get nervous about financial well-being. And, and, and governments and, and financial service providers have, have motivated, incentivized people to look after their financial well-being. And what I believe is now this third big wave of, of a type of well-being is educational well-being. Wow, educational well-being. So what would you envisage, say, a new job in the new economy that would be around that theme? Well, there are plenty of jobs. So we talked in the past about community designers. We talked about data economists. We talked about the fact that maybe business analysts increasingly will be replaced with business designers. Now, there are a lot of new jobs in the making. But at the moment, I think our problem is we see the jobs that are disappearing we see the jobs uh, that are forecasted uh, as, as disappearing, and that sort of story needs to be complemented with more and more stories around what's happening. So like someone who potentially uh, faces uh, issues when it comes to financial or physical well-being, what we need to make sure is that people understand uh, what's your personalized need for educational well-being. If Michael Osborne says an accountant is in danger, then accountants have a higher need for educational well-being, maybe than an artist. Um, and so we have to raise this sort of awareness uh, depending on the position you are in. And I believe that educational well-being, educational foresight, um, will mitigate the risk uh, uh, of unemployment, literally. Wow, that's fascinating. Educational well-being officer. Mm, I'm liking it. So this is an interesting job. You could imagine in, in, the, in the future there's a whole new area emerging where people become, like financial service advisors, educational personalized advisors. Mm, that's interesting. So in terms of what the government might need to do in terms of policy settings, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, wanting to move up this scale of the CEDA or the OECD about collaboration. And, you know, we've certainly tried to do our bit. We've got, you know, 40 proposals out the door now and we've got collaborations actively going with 15 or 20 different clients under the chair. So we can see that there's demand out there if presented in the right way. But, you know, how else could, at a, you know, as a public good for our policy settings, could they be structured at a state, local or a national level to encourage that facilitation? It's a very good point, Monica, that we really have to address policy and, and, and policy makers here. Um, I guess similar to what we are doing to incentivize people for regular medical checkups or to put enough funds into their um, superannuation, what we here have to incentivize people um, to spend more time, energy, funds, resources, dedication on educational well-being. And you could imagine a world where, where the government, on whatever level, incentivize individuals to, to put substantial amount of time into educational well-being. Whether that means you, you financially reimburse the employer, uh, whether you give tax incentives to employees to pay for those sort of training lessons, whether you subsidize um, subscription models. Mm -hmm. So today, you subsidize higher education to the first degree. Could you imagine a world where you subsidize lifelong learning? So we are at the beginning to think about this, but, but I very much believe that government plays also a role to prepare our, our country uh, to ensure that in addition to financial and physical, um, there's, there's decent educational well-being. Mm. 
Fantastic. So we've had a real trip through the real world today, uh, you know, focused a lot on this talent development and education. You know, it's, I guess it's part of what makes us passionate every day when we come to work, isn't it? Absolutely, Monica. And I think following the stream, go home and, and, and learn. So don't tell me just next time I see you. Learn, Michael. How would I ever turn my hand off? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's, where I... the, that's a whole other episode. That's about mindfulness Absolutely. and calming the mind. But I... The neuroscience of how we might learn. I wish I would see people on Monday who don't tell me just I went for a run. But they also would tell me, what have I learned? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. we have to go to that sort of society where, where people are proud and share their learning experience very much like they share their, their physical experience. Mm-hmm. So my Facebook feed would be full of what I learned today. That could be one. Yeah, good. Hey, listen, thanks for your time this morning. Pleasure. See you next week. See you in the digital world.